Let's pray together. Father, we confess and believe that the Word has been made flesh and has lived a while among us. And we beheld His glory, full of grace and truth. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning as we open your word to be able to behold the glory of Christ, that you would fill up all of our imaginings, all of our affections with the truth and beauty of who he is. So to that end, we ask you to open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law, incline our hearts to your testimony and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. About 40 years ago, there was a late night sketch comedy TV program that uh, featured this recurring bit called Grumpy Old Man. And it, uh, the bit features this comedian named Dana Carvey who dressed up as an old man and all he did the whole time was talk about how things were better back in my day, you know, things were like this and this and this, and it was you know, always better. And the gag was that no matter how austere and awful he would describe things back in my day, grumpy old man always believed things were better than they are now. And there was one bit where he says, you know, when I was a boy, we didn't have things like video games. Um, we made up our own games, like chew the bark off the trees. We, we, you and your friends, you'd find a nice oak tree and you'd start chewing the skin off of it and there were no winners. Everybody was a loser. It rotted your teeth. It left your intestines scarred and knotted. And that's the way it was and we liked it. We were thankful we had it. And it, no matter how absurd it was, grumpy old man thought what came before was always better than, than now. And it's caricaturing something that I think is a real impulse inside of us. Um, this idea that what came before is a little bit idealized in our minds and is always better than, than now. I've discovered this in myself, same, it's a kind of a penchant for nostalgia. Uh, I find myself talking to the kids, you can ask them. I talk about the good old days in ways that make me sound like grumpy old man. I will opine about the 1980s as if it were the high point of Western civilization. When really all that it was was just the, the decade of my childhood. And my recollections, if I were being honest, are actually a little bit whitewashed. They've been sanitized in my own imagination. Yes, some things were better then, but it would be a massive distortion to believe that all things were better then than now. To act as if nothing today can measure up to what came before. So do you ever sense this uh, tendency in your own heart, a kind of undiscerning preference for the old over the new, and an inability to an Im imagine that anything could ever be improved upon, and kind of a summary dismissal of the new simply because it's new? What if God had actually made the world that way, though? What if things were that way and it wasn't just a part of your imagining, such that every day is better than the next? Think about that for a minute. My dad says this to people sometimes. Every day with you is better than the next. 
That means that every day is worse than the one before, okay? Um, uh, but some people view things that way. But what if the world really was that way? There would be nothing today or tomorrow that would ever measure up to what came before. The more time passes, the more miserable and decrepit we would become. There would be nothing in the world that ages like wine. All things would age like milk. It's pretty good at the beginning, but then it just eventually spoils. What if God had made the world that way? What if God had left us in a fallen world like that? As if the best is already past and the worst is yet to come. Now that kind of perspective is actually the opposite of the way that God has made us and the way that he's set things up to unfold within the world and within his redemptive plan. But it's still nevertheless the temptation that we're prone to fall into as Christians we're actually supposed to believe that as bad as things get, get here, it, the, the worst is not yet to come. The best is yet to come in the age to come. But sometimes we struggle to believe it as we muddle our way through here east of Eden. And that temptation to feel that way, that things could never get better, that God couldn't even make them better. That was certainly the kind of temptation that I think Jesus was confronting in his own ministry, especially in his first miracle, the turning of water into wine. I want you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Now, we have spent several weeks in John chapter 1 where John's introduced us to the eternal word of God made flesh We've seen the, the ministry of John the Baptist, and we've seen Jesus call his first disciples to himself. But now we move into chapter 2, where Jesus is about to perform the first of seven miraculous signs that dominate the first half of John's gospel. And in this sign, this first sign, Jesus is going to have a word for people who are tempted to believe that every day is better than the next. So I want you to observe how this narrative unfolds in three different movements. You're going to see in verses 1 through 5, Jesus' reproof. And then, Jesus, and then in verses 6 through 10, Jesus' sign. And then in verse 11, Jesus' glory. So first of all, Jesus' reproof in verses 1 through 5. Jesus' sign in verses 6 through 10. And then Jesus' glory in verse 11. So first of all, Jesus' reproof. Everybody look at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, Cana of Galilee was this small village about nine miles north of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And the fact that both Jesus and his mother were invited to this wedding and that the village is so close to Nazareth suggests that the wedding involved maybe relatives of Mary and Jesus. Maybe it, was, it could have been a close friend. But one commentator, D.A. Carson, suggests that Mary might have had some responsibility for the organization or the, of the catering for this, this wedding. That's possible. It's not stated in the text. But it's, it's really not even necessary to explain why Mary would be so concerned about what happens next. Everybody look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. 
Pause right there. In Jesus's day, a, a wedding celebration was a big deal. It could go on for as long as a week. And a very important part of the wedding celebration was the feast. And unlike um, our weddings today, the financial responsibility for a wedding celebration rested entirely upon the, the groom. So to run out of wine in this context would be a major faux pas and a public humiliation in this honor and shame culture. So uh, one commentator says that there is some evidence that, that um, it could also lay the groom open to a lawsuit from aggrieved relatives of, of the bride. It's a big deal for the wine to run out. But you don't have to live in an honor and shame culture to understand how humiliating it would have been to run out of wine at a wedding feast. You can imagine going to a wedding rehearsal dinner today. Uh, what it would be like if they invited 50 guests but only ended up having seats for 20. 20 seats, 20 meals, but now you got 50 guests. It would be an absolute humiliation to have more guests than provisions. What do you say to the 30 who won't be seated, who won't be eating, but who've already RSVP'd and they've shown up to the event? What do you tell them? Whatever you tell them, you're, you're going to be embarrassed <laughs> to have to tell them that. If it were your responsibility, it wouldn't be a small problem socially. It'd, be a, a, it'd feel like a really big deal. Now, I know we as Southern Baptists um, may not recognize this sometimes, but it's really important to understand that the wine that they ran out of and the wine that Jesus is going to provide are not mere grape juice or unfermented fruit of the vine, okay? That's not what he's talking about here. It's real wine. Um, it's true that in that day, wine was commonly diluted anywhere from one-third to one-tenth of its fermented strength, which would make it probably a little less alcoholic than um, beer is today. Nevertheless, it was the real thing, okay? It was the kind that will make you tipsy or even drunk if you were to drink enough of it. And now here at the wedding feast, there's this humiliation potentially because they're out of it. Okay? They, they, they've, they've run out of this. So Mary comes and tells Jesus they have no wine. This is a problem. Now, interpreters have disputed over the years what exactly Mary was expecting when she tells Jesus that the wine had run out. Some people think that she really had no expectation. Um, she was just um, passing on the embarrassing news to Jesus and, um, but she really had no expectations. But when you look later in verse 5, when she says, do whatever he tells you, that seems to suggest that she did have at least some kind of expectation. Now, it's difficult to say whether or not she expected a miracle. In fact, some interpreters think that she wasn't expecting a miracle. Um, this is, after all, the first of Jesus' miraculous signs. You see that in verse 11. And we don't have any evidence that before this, he was performing miracles. And if that's the case, then Mary, really, she wouldn't have had precedent to be expecting a miracle here. And we, we, at this point, Mary's husband, Joseph, he, he doesn't appear again in any of the gospel narratives after Jesus and his family visit the temple when he's 12 years old. So it looks like Joseph is already off, off the scene. Mary is a widow by this point, which suggests that she would have learned by this time, to rely on her firstborn son, Jesus, to take care of her. 
which that would have been his responsibility. Do you think that he would have ever failed in that responsibility? Well, of course, he would, he would not. So it would have been natural for her to rely on him and to turn to him in a kind of um, reliance upon his natural resourcefulness. Not anything necessarily supernatural, but Jesus, what, 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 what do we do here? But, but I think Jesus' response suggests that she was actually expecting more from him than just natural resourcefulness. She's asking him to fix this problem in a way that would have disclosed who he really is. And that wouldn't have happened merely by natural resourcefulness, I don't think. That kind of disclosure would only have occurred if she were asking him to do something public and I think miraculous to fix the wine problem. I think that's what's going on here. And so Jesus responds to her in the way that he does in verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, if you are reading this and you're thinking that Jesus calling his own mother woman sounds a little bracing, that's because it is. Uh, this is not how you would expect a son to address his mother. But when, when you think about the word woman that appears in so many of our English translations, it may actually fail to capture the exact connotation of the original. If I were to address a lady in our church with the term woman, it would come across as either overly formal or maybe insulting. So if I say, you know, woman, you've done a good job. Um, who talks like that, right? Um, if I say, um, uh, woman, what's wrong with you? Um, you know, I'm going to get rebuked for saying woman. It just sounds like insulting. So, so I'm, I'm, I question whether or not woman really is the best way, way to render this term. The, the term that he's using here is actually the same term that Jesus uses when he addresses Mary from the cross. And, he, and it says there in chapter 19 and verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. You remember that part? So the, the term is not rude, like woman, what's wrong with you? It's not, it's not rude. I think it's, I think it's a courteous term, even though it's usually not a term of endearment that you would express to, to your mother. Um, one commentator, D.A. Carson suggests that the word uh, ma'am um, probably captures what this word is communicating. So that, that's, pro I agree with him on that, but even so, even so, even though the term is courteous, ma'am, if that's basically what he means, that's, that's still not the way one would naturally or normally address their mother. Think about the difference between mom, can I borrow your car, and ma'am, can I borrow your car? You hear the difference there? They're not the same. You know, if you're a mother in the room, how would you respond if your kids were to address you like this? I'm not talking about yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. Okay, I'm talking about using ma'am in place, places where they would normally say mom or mommy. If your child addressed you like that, no matter what age, you would feel some distancing in that expression. Do you see what I'm saying here? Some, some distancing there. So um, that's what's actually going on here with Jesus. And it's confirmed by what he says next. So he says, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? This isn't a bad rendering, the what does this have to do with me, but literally Jesus is saying, ma'am, what is to me and to you? 
which is a rhetorical question that's asking, what's of common interest to me and to you in this particular matter? And the rhetorical question suggests a negative answer, meaning we don't have common interests here in this matter, ma'am. So when this exact expression is used elsewhere, uh, what is to me and what is to you, um, it always distances the two parties. Um, indeed, the speaker's tone sometimes is overlaid with um, certain degrees of reproach. Um, the tone's not rude necessarily, but it, but it is abrupt, and it's expressing some kind of a protest or a refusal. It's the exact same phrase, get this, that the demons use when they're addressing Jesus. So like in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 29, what, do we have, what, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Or Mark 124, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Mark 5, 7, what have you to do with us? What's to me, what's to you, Jesus? Son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. This was a, a distancing expression as the demons use it towards Jesus. And so there's really, when you see the same expression on the lips of Jesus, there's no getting around the impression, although some people try, there's no getting around the impression that Jesus is using language that's politely putting a stiff arm up to his own mother. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, we must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. He has embarked on his ministry, the purpose of his coming. His only lodestar is his heavenly father's will, end quote. I think Carson is exactly right about that. Think about what Jesus says in chapter 5 and verse 30, for example. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus has one agenda to do the will of his father. John 8, 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus has one agenda, it's to do the will of his father. And so it's like Jesus, when he's talking to his mother here, he's saying, ma'am, you have an agenda and my father has an agenda. My agenda is set by my father, not by you. I am on mission from my father and I will only and always do his will. You are my mother, I love you, but you don't have an inside track when it comes to my messianic mission. I think that's the implication of Jesus' distancing words here in this expression. Ma'am, what is to me and to you? The question is, why is he talking this way to her? I mean, they're just running out of wine. She thinks he can help. You can go fix it. You know, what, what's the big deal? Well, look what he says in the next phrase. He says, my hour has not yet come. This is the language that Jesus uses throughout the gospel to refer to his forthcoming death and resurrection, which is the hour of his greatest glory. My hour has not yet come. John chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 
John chapter 8 and verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And then Jesus himself in John chapter 12, right before he goes to the cross, he says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What's about to happen in that hour? He's going to go to the cross. He's going to be resurrection. Father, he's going to be resurrected. Father, glorify your name. So the, the hour of Jesus' greatest glory is the hour of his death, burial, and resurrection. And so when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, he's telling Mary that the time for the revelation of his full glory has not yet come. He could do some kind of miraculous sign a very public uh, manifestation as a foretaste of his coming glory. He could do that, but that's not his father's agenda, apparently, right then. Instead, he will do something, we'll find out, that's mainly private to reveal his glory to his disciples and a handful of others. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you look in the way that Jesus relates to his mother in the Gospels, as it, during his ministry, it's almost um, everywhere he's at pains to establish some distance between them. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 46, it says, While he was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside, seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, seeking to speak to you. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Can you imagine hearing that? You're standing outside. And Jesus says, Who is my mother? He who does the will of my father, that's my mother, not her out there. Can you imagine how difficult this would have been for Mary? She gave birth to him. She nursed him. She raised him. She wiped his nose. She changed his diapers. She had watched him become a man and become the provider for their family after Joseph died. And now he's saying, who are my mother and brothers? Ma'am, what does this have to do with me? This distancing. You remember in Luke 2.35 where it said that Mary was going to have to experience the piercing of her own soul? Maybe this was a part of it. Certainly it was the, the death of Jesus, but maybe this was a part of it. This, this distancing and this necessary pulling away to fulfill his father's mission. This was not meanness or coldness on Jesus' part. He would care for his mother as a son ought to care for his mother. We know that in chapter 19. But it was a moment for Mary to learn and for us to learn that no one has an inside track with Jesus. No one has a claim on him that would take priority over the mission his father had given to him, not even his very own mother, Mary. This text is not presenting her as like some kind of a mediator. 
That's not what's going on here. Mary must come to Jesus like every other person comes to Jesus, not by presuming upon her natural relation, but by faith. She must come to him not merely as her son, but as the Lord and Messiah, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, including her sin. Which makes her response to Jesus' stiff arm all the more remarkable. Because look what she says in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, Mary doesn't know how Jesus is going to respond. She doesn't know whether or not a miracle is coming. She doesn't know whether he will do anything about replenishing the wine. Instead, she displays, I believe, what can only be viewed as persevering faith on the other side of this stiff arm from her son. She's basically saying, look, y'all don't worry about my agenda. Don't worry about what I said or what I would do. Just do whatever he says. I don't know what he's going to say, but whatever he says will be good and right and true and worthy. Whatever he says, you just do it. Just do whatever he says. Who are my mother and my brothers? Behold my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And now Mary is saying, just do whatever he says. Now, there's some really good news, I believe, in this reproof from Jesus, not just for Mary, but also for, for all of us. Nobody has an inside track on Jesus. If you're here this morning and you don't have Christian parents, you weren't raised in a Christian home, that is no barrier to your coming to Jesus right now. None at all. You don't have to have some kind of a spiritual pedigree to get connected to Jesus. Jesus does not honor that kind of presumption. You look around this church, you will find a lot of seminary students, Bible college students, professors, men and women preparing for ministry, a lot of people studying theology who seem to be so smart and learned. And guess what? None of us connected to professional Christianity has an inside track here. Not a single one. And your lack of connection to professional Christianity does not inhibit you at all from knowing Christ and knowing him deeply. All of us, no matter our situation or background, no matter what evil we have done or what good we have omitted, we all come to Christ in the same way. All of us. And it's, this is the way. It's by faith. All you have to do is to believe in him, to trust in him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By dying on the cross and being raised from the dead, Jesus says that if you will come to him with a simple, childlike faith, you will have eternal life. Joy and hope in the present and an eternal world of joy in the future. And the only thing you have to do is repent of sin and believe in him. That's it. And it's for anybody who wants to believe. Anyone. Come to Jesus. Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will in no ways cast them out. If you come to Jesus, 
he will not cast you out. But you come to him, not because of a family connection or some prior claim you think you have on him. You come to him by believing that you're a sinner who needs him. And so you come to him by faith. You just believe. And then you know what you do? You do what Mary says. You do whatever he says. Jesus says, believe. And so you believe. So there's grace in Jesus' reproof. But there's also grace in Jesus' sign. So everybody look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now you should imagine these water pots very large. Okay, each of them holding 20 or 30 gallons, that's, that's a lot. And the Jews needed these water pots because they needed a lot of water over and over to make themselves ritually pure. At least so they believed. So some of their ideas about ritual purity were coming from the Bible, Moses' law. Some of their ideas about that were coming from Jewish tradition. But we know that the Jews were using these water pots for religious purification. In fact, if you look at Mark chapter 7 and verse 3, it says this. Don't turn there, just listen. Um, it says that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So the, the Jews were into hand washings and washing all kinds of other things that they had to use. They needed a lot of water for this. And so you see all these big jugs out there that hold up to 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So when you think about these, these water pots, you have to remember that these were water pots that were set aside for ritual cleansing, right? So these water pots are representing the old order of Jewish law and custom, which Jesus is actually coming to replace. That's what's going on here. And so look at verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Now, I think filling these jars up to the brim likely symbolizes the fact that the time for ceremonial purification under a Mosaic administration has been completely fulfilled. Fill them up with water. This is what you're doing for ritual purity under Moses. Fill it up. The time is fulfilled, but it's about to be over and replaced with something else. There's a, a cleansing that Moses provides, but there's a different cleansing that Jesus is about to provide. There's a cleansing that Moses has, but guess what? It's not as good as the cleansing that, that Jesus is going to bring. What Jesus brings is going to be a lavish provision, because these jars are holding anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of what would be water turned into wine. That's a lot of wine. That's enough to cover the feast and probably then some. Think about this. There's a contrast here between Jesus as the groom to the church and the actual groom here at this wedding who's in charge of this feast. Whereas the groom in the wedding had not brought enough wine for the feast, Jesus, the real groom, is going to make the wine flow like rivers for his marriage supper. So look at verse 8. He said to them, 
Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now notice that the master of the feast, who is probably like the head waiter, okay, the head waiter guy, doesn't know where the wine came from. Jesus knows. The disciples know. Some of the servants know. But presumably, this miracle is not yet known to everyone else. Probably is going to become known later, but right now, not so much. So the master of the feast here, the head waiter, he's, he's puzzled as he tastes this wine. And he says what he says in verse 10. He says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. It's, he's puzzled about this. What does this mean? Now, now, this is one of the most, in my view, one of the most profound verses in the Bible. It's, it's also one of the instances in John's gospel where somebody speaks better than what they know. Um, the head waiter does not know about the miracle. He doesn't know about the symbolism of the water pots for purification and the new wine that Jesus is providing. But John, the author, who's writing this, he knows. And John intends for his readers, you and I, to be able to see all of this symbolic meaning in the words of the head waiter. The head waiter observes what was the common practice for wedding feasts and how this groom apparently had gone against what the custom was. Usually the groom would have the very best wine served first, so it was less diluted, right? More of an alcoholic content. Serve that first, and then the lesser, more diluted wine later. And it's really simple why you do that, because the more alcohol people imbibe, the less aware they will be of the diminishing quality of the wine. Serve the good stuff up front, and nobody's any wiser when the not-so-good stuff comes out. That, that was the normal procedure. Everybody knew it. Everybody expected it. But now, in this instance, Jesus has provided wine from jars intended for cleansing. And this wine is better than anything that came before it. It's impossible to imagine that Better wine would arrive later if you were at a wedding feast in that day. It should be that every glass is better than the next. Right? Are you starting to see what all of this is about? So the, the wine that runs out and the water for cleansing in the water pots represent what Moses gave to the Jews in the law. He gave them a sacrificial system, a tabernacle, and procedures for maintaining ritual purity. Jesus is about to replace what Moses commanded with a better cleansing. A cleansing that once you take part in it, you don't need any more cleansing. You don't come back over and over to wash your hands over and over in the water pots. You're clean. It's done. It's over. And it never runs out. Moses gave them this lesser thing, Jesus is giving them this greater thing. And every single Jew knew that the greatest revelator in the history of their faith was Moses. Moses was the pinnacle. Moses was the mountaintop. Moses had spoken face to face 
to God. Moses alone had the glory of God reflecting off of his face when he came down from Sinai. Moses alone delivered God's law to his people, telling them how to be pure. They got that from Moses. And if you were a Jew, you understood that it doesn't get any better than Moses. If you're King David, you're calling the nation back to obey the law of Moses. If you're Josiah, you're getting the nation to obey the law of Moses. Moses is the mountaintop. So what came before is always better, if you're a Jew in this scenario, because what came before is Moses. So what is Jesus saying through this sign? He's not just performing some kind of a parlor trick. He's not just showing them that he has the power to do what he wants. Right? This whole miracle is a big, giant parable of a deeper truth about who Jesus is and about how Jesus is going to defy all of their expectations. They thought that the pinnacle was Moses, but Jesus is saying, no, my father has saved the very best for last, and it's me. It's me. Do you remember what John the Apostle wrote in the prologue? Chapter 1 and verse 16, For, for of his fullness we have all received... And grace in place of grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. What do you mean no man has seen God at any time? Moses spoke with God mouth to mouth. That's what the Bible says. He spoke to him face to face. Well, sort of. Moses knew that he wasn't seeing the full glory. Didn't Moses know that? Isn't that why he asked God to let him see the full glory in Exodus 33? You remember that? And what does God say to him? No man can see my full glory and live. Not even you, Moses. So I'm going to let my glory pass by you, but I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock so that you don't get incinerated by my glory when it passes by. So sure, Moses saw more than anyone ever had, but not even Moses saw the full glory. But now we have Jesus, the only begotten God, who not only sees the unmitigated glory, he is the unmitigated glory of God. Moses is not the mountaintop. Jesus is the mountaintop of God's revelation. You may have seen Moses, but you haven't seen anything yet if you haven't seen Jesus. Jesus alone is the only begotten God in the bosom of the Father who explains the Father, who reveals to us who he really is. Only Jesus can say, as he does in John 14, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Moses can't say that. Nobody can say that. Only Jesus can say that. So you can't be the grumpy old man when it comes to Jesus. Looking back at Moses wistfully, I want to go back to this. So the, the, Jim is preaching through Hebrews. It's all about this. They want to go back to the law. And the whole book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is better than anything that came before. Because God has saved the very, very best for last. And it's Jesus. And nothing that came before can compete. And you can be very, very sure as we go through the gospel of John, 
that the Jewish leaders especially are going to have a really hard time with this. So many of them are going to prefer what came before over Jesus. Just one example, John chapter 5. Jesus talking to them. He says this in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus is saying, you think Moses was the mountaintop? You don't even understand Moses. Moses was talking about me the whole time. He was waiting for me. Moses wrote about me. Now, when you read this, in the gospel, and you see the Jews not getting it. Beware that you not read this and think, boy, am I glad I'm not like those Pharisees who preferred Moses over Jesus. And I say beware and be careful because it's not just Jewish sinners who prefer other things over Jesus. It's all of us. The root of this fallenness is inside everybody. In fact, I would even say, as a Christian, my whole Christian life has been one lesson after another about how I sinfully prefer certain things or people or power or money or influence or the praise of men over Jesus. Sanctification for me has been God convincing my mind and my heart that there's nothing better than Jesus. That's it. Just a progressive unfailing that there's nothing better from him. Take this away, take that away, make this hard, make this easy. Just so you'll see, there's nothing better than him. And that God has saved the very best for last, and it's Jesus. Jesus is the mountaintop. If I lose everything and yet still have him, I have everything I need. My life is, as a faltering sinner, saved by grace, has been one big lesson of that. That's it. And truth be known, that's your life too. This is the whole shebang right here. Growing in your affections and in your conviction that Jesus is better than anything. Once you believe that and know it down deep in your bones, there is nothing that you won't suffer, nothing that you won't lose, nothing that you won't forfeit, no cross that you won't carry in order to have him. That's the whole thing. It's the burden of that old song by Rhea Miller and George Beverly Say. You remember it? I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. 
I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. That's it, right? To make your hearts and affections know there's nothing better than him. That's what Jesus is trying to convince us of. That is the whole reason for the revelation of his glory, that you will think there is nothing better than him. So there is grace in Jesus' reproof. There's grace in his sign. But finally, verse 11, and this will be really short. There's grace in Jesus' glory. He says this in verse, it says this in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed him. There are a couple connections here you need to get. The Apostle, Paul, the Apostle John says that this miracle is the first of his signs. And I want you to mark that word sign. It's going to be a key to the rest of the gospel. John's gospel is unique in referring to Jesus' miracles as signs and then focusing on seven particular signs that reveal his glory and that lead up to the biggest sign, his death and resurrection. Now, this is important in John's gospel because a sign is more than just a miracle, as we've just seen. In the other gospels, you have all these works of power. They're showing Jesus' power, proving he's Messiah. That's how they function there. But here they're called signs. And a sign is also, it, it, it is a work of power, but it's more than that. A sign signifies something other than itself. The signs are symbols of deeper spiritual realities. We're going to come to Jesus saying later, I'm the bread of life. He's going to feed the 5,000, then he's going to explain to them, I'm the bread of life. The sign means more than what you think. And so these signs are, are like little parables that are pointing to glorious truths about who Jesus is. That's, that's what these are. That's why you're going to see, we'll see this next time in the latter part of John 2, some people see the signs, but they don't really see the signs. They will see a miracle, but they don't see the glory. They will see the work, but they don't see what the work is pointing to. Jesus is manifesting his glory through these signs, but there are many who are just not going to see it. But that's not the case with his disciples, right? It says his disciples, he manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him in verse 11. The disciples see the glory. They see and understand that when Jesus turns the water into wine, he's revealing that God has saved the very best for last. Moses isn't the mountaintop. Jesus is the mountaintop. They're seeing Jesus' glory far surpassing anything Moses ever saw. They see that glory, and because they see that glory, they believe. Here's the thing. The manifestation of God's glory is for our good. It is for our faith. It's the whole point of this gospel. You remember John chapter 20, verse 30, the theme verse of the gospel. Many other signs, therefore Jesus perform, also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you don't see the connection here, none of the rest of the gospel makes sense. The signs are revealing the glory. The glory is what opens up hearts of faith. The whole point of this is for us to see and to believe what's there. And that's what we're going to be praying 
that God will enable all of us to do. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the glory of Christ in this gospel. I pray that it would not go over our heads. But Father, that you would prepare prepare hearts and minds to receive the truth that, Lord, your glory would stand forth and that your people would believe, that you would draw them out and make it happen. Father, I pray for those who are here who don't know you. I pray that they will see the glory, repent of their sin, and believe in Christ, who is better than anything they have and who's worth losing everything they have to have him. I pray for those people that you would call them to yourself and help them to believe. Father, I pray for all of us who profess Christ that you would give us persevering faith, that we would be able to say with Mary, do whatever he says, that we would resign ourselves to you and to your will, and that we would learn that there is nothing better than you, and that every trial and every bit of suffering, we would know that you are teaching us that there is nothing better than you that our sufferings would be swallowed up with displays of faith and glory and not be overrun with darkness. Help us, Lord. We need you so much for this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.